This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Monument Grills and their Denali 605 Pro Smart Propane Gas Grill. Featuring six main burners and an infrared side burner, the Denali Grill solves a lot of backyard barbecue complaints before they start. There's no waiting for the grill to heat up because the Denali heats to 700 degrees Fahrenheit in just 10 minutes. And you don't have to worry about uneven heat because the Denali features patented Blaze Zone technology for consistent temperatures across the whole grill. It also has a clear viewing lid, so you don't have to keep opening and shutting it. And Bluetooth app control for cooking without interrupting your conversation. The Denali 605 Pro is not just a grill, it's an experience. A juicy, delicious, perfectly seared, medium-rare experience. Upgrade your backyard game with the Denali 605 Pro at monumentgrills.com. And don't miss out on $45 off with the code OUTSIDE45. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. A few weeks ago, those of us who live in the Northern Hemisphere were set up for an exceptional show of shooting stars. The Perseid meteor shower, caused by debris from a comet, happens every July and August. And this year, activity would be peaking just before a new moon, meaning a dark sky and ideal viewing. I was on vacation during the peak, and I was excited to watch the spectacle. But sitting in the backyard of where I was staying, I couldn't actually see much. The problem? I was in a densely populated beach community, and only about 60 miles outside a major city, which meant that I was inside a kind of fog of artificial light. Most people in North America find themselves in the same situation. It's hard to see shooting stars, or constellations, or even the Milky Way from our homes. And light pollution doesn't just affect humans. It has major impacts on all life on Earth. All this is relatively new, and it doesn't have to be permanent. Earlier this year, the talented team at the Side Door podcast put together an episode that explores the recent history of our addiction to artificial light and how we might bring a little healthy darkness back to the night sky. Host Lizzie Peabody did an amazing job guiding us through a very illuminating story, and we are delighted to share it with you today. If you're not familiar with Side Door, it's a podcast from the Smithsonian Institution. The show sneaks you behind the scenes at the Smithsonian to tell the stories that can't be found anywhere else. They have a new season kicking off on September 13th, and I highly recommend checking it out. Here's Lizzie. Diane Turnshek loves stars. I have a countertop that looks like the Milky Way in cement with embedded hundreds of fiber optic cables for stars. And she's always loved stars ever since she was a little kid. I used to tell people I wanted to be a theoretical nuclear astrophysicist. And when you're seven and you say that, people's eyes bug out. (laughs) Yeah. And I kind of, I like that. I like that expression on people's faces. So I was like, oh, I better do that thing. (laughs) I've told everyone this is what I want. Now I have to do it. And Diane did that thing. She went to school. She became an astronomer. Ended up with a graduate degree But then having children changed that. Diane chose to step away from her career to raise her four boys in Pittsburgh. But once they got older, she was ready to turn her gaze skyward again. The Mars Desert Research Station was actively accepting applicants. In fact, 
anybody can go. You just have to apply. This research station is in the Utah desert, and it simulates life on Mars. So in the summer of 2012, Diane packed her bags and went to live on Mars, a.k.a. the desert, for two weeks. And on her first night out there, she stopped to watch the sun set over the mountains. The sun went down, and the stars started to come out. One, two, ten, a hundred, a thousand. It was breathtaking. If you're not driving or doing something you really need your eyes for, I encourage you to stop and close them for a moment. Try to imagine what Diane was seeing. Stars on top of stars on top of stars, all shimmering and twinkling, so bright you can actually see your shadow on the desert floor. You feel like the stars are right nearby. You could reach out and touch them. They're, they're so bright and so close feeling. If you are laying down, you could have a vertigo that you feel like you're lifting up off the ground into space. I mean, you're not looking up anymore. You're looking out into infinite space. (laughs) So it's an experience that you realize that We're living on a tiny little sphere in the middle of an enormous universe. Diane, an astronomer, had taught students about the Milky Way, the hundreds of billions of stars that make up our galaxy. But living in Pittsburgh, the glow of city lights had blocked her own view of the Milky Way for more than two decades. Seeing that again after so long, I realized what I'd been missing. It took me by surprise because I had forgotten, of all things, the Milky Way. Diane had an epiphany. I need to do something about this. I need to change this. I need to change the world. Artificial lighting has opened up a whole new world for us, giving us the ability to walk and drive and read signs at night, to live the way we choose at any hour. But it also affects us in ways we may not yet see. 80% of people in North America can't see the Milky Way because we're constantly surrounded by artificial lighting. And every year, across the globe, we're able to see fewer and fewer stars. But Diane is on a path to change this, to take back the night sky, to turn the lights out. And she's not the only one on this journey. So this time on Side Door, we look at how we got surrounded by a glowing shroud of electricity and whether we can have the dark without giving up the light. Diane Turnshek returned from the Utah desert back to Pittsburgh with a single goal in mind, to put an end to light pollution. When she wasn't busy with her day job, teaching astronomy at Carnegie Mellon University, she was talking about light pollution with literally anyone who would listen. I just talked and talked and talked. I talked to people in elevators, (laughs) random strangers. I just talked. 
She went to kindergarten classes, reached out to amateur astronomers, held light pollution-themed crafting sessions, even helped some of her students create a light pollution video game. Just every which way. She published a book. Peter Pan comes down to Earth, gathers up the lost boys, is trying to find the second star to the right and straight on till morning, oh but he can't gosh. find it because <laughs> so, of light pollution. So sad. <laughs> Wow, what a, that's a harrowing twist on a children's classic. <laughs> but Diane wasn't just singing the praises of twinkling stars and all their majesty. The problem of light pollution reached far beyond humans and the occasional fictional characters who are unable to find Neverland. The negative impacts of excessive artificial lighting extended to all the animal realm. She did a local TED Talk to explain how. of vertebrates are nocturnal, and twice that many invertebrates are nocturnal, and they have their own patterns. And we've disrupted this ecosystem with our 100-year, basically, change of the light of the world. You've heard the story of, say, sea turtle hatchlings on the beaches, especially in Florida, where 90% of them come up to hatch. They are looking for the shimmering light on the moonlight on the water, and instead they go up to the shimmering boardwalk lights, and thousands of them every year, these little hatchlings are killed, till we now have an endangered species. Light pollution doesn't just wreak havoc on turtles. Frogs are also vulnerable to excessive light. That croaking you hear at night is a mating ritual. But if there's too much light, the frogs don't know it's nighttime. They don't croak, and they don't mate. Light pollution interferes with the natural life cycles of many insects and plants. But there's one animal it hurts more than any other, by far. Deep within the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, out of sight of visitors, there is a maze of metal lockers. I feel like this is like if you got stuck in like through the looking glass, but in like a high school gym locker room or something. Brian Schmidt is guiding me through this labyrinth. Yeah, how do you even know where to go? <laughs> well, I've been working here, you know, 28 years, so I have a fairly good idea on where everything lives. Brian is a museum specialist. That specialty? Birds. And wow, do we have a lot of them. So we have about 600,000 birds in our collections. Brian is showing me birds from the collection that he's chosen to be featured in the National Museum of Natural History's new exhibition, Lights Out. Recovering Our Night Sky. He's specifically selected birds that have been killed by light pollution. He leads me to the back of, like, the fifth row of lockers, opens up a metal door, and pulls out a flat drawer covered in small brown birds. Here we go. Oh, my gosh. Row after row of stuffed swamp sparrows. Dozens of them. He picks one up and reads the tiny tag tied to its little leg. So the back of the tags has the museum catalog number. Uh, I actually prepared this bird, and it was my 9,013th bird that I've prepared. Wow, that's a lot of birds, Brian. (laughs) I've been doing this for about 30 years. (laughs) The tag says that this was a young bird. So this bird was hatched the previous summer. Oh, so, it, wow. it, so it was making its, its first migration. Making its very first migration, less than six months old. Brian says this bird died by running into a building here in Washington, D.C. 
migratory birds like swamp sparrows and white-throated sparrows are more likely to die by running into buildings. They travel thousands of miles across the continent twice a year, once in the spring, again in fall. And like many migratory birds, they travel in flocks. So birds that are flying together, you know, will hit buildings together. And if you're wondering just how many birds die this way each year... Somewhere between 300 million and 1 billion birds, migratory birds a year, die in the United States from window collisions. A billion birds a year? Yeah, just in the United States. Wow. This is Lisbeth Fuse. She's with Lights Out DC, a volunteer group that donated the swamp sparrow and thousands of other birds to the Smithsonian. During each migration season, Lisbeth and other volunteers walk around the city and look for birds that have flown into buildings. We go early in the morning because many birds migrate at night. And when she says early, she means early. 6 a.m. It's still dark out as we walk the streets of downtown D.C., which I didn't realize is a popular rest stop on the Atlantic Flyway, essentially a highway for migrating birds. Millions of birds go north and south twice a year over the Atlantic Flyway. So, like, while we're sleeping, they're very busy. As we walk along, Lisbeth points out the office buildings that are the most hazardous to birds. And I would layer some of the sound of us walking right here, but Lisbeth made fun of podcasts that do that. (laughs) You know, there's always, like, that ambient noise as they (laughs) go along. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Yeah. We do have a garbage pail rolling along. And as we walk, I'm dismayed to realize the most dangerous buildings are inevitably the most beautiful, like the ones you'd see on the cover of Architectural Digest. We stop in front of a building with one of these distinctly dangerous designs. The front entrance is basically a big wall of glass. It's very open feeling, and behind it um, is a large atrium that the office buildings look onto. And in this atrium is literally like a forest of bamboo, and that bamboo is downlit from lights above. And then there's um, lights all around the perimeter of the atrium. Imagine you're a bird. It's been a long night of flying, and you are ready to take a break drink a little water, eat some worms, maybe some bugs, and you see a nice little sunny spot with a pond and some trees to chill out on. But you have no idea that what you thought was a ray of sunshine was actually a bunch of artificial lights. And there's a wall of glass between you and your little oasis. And I think you can actually see, do you see there's a kind of smudge? Elizabeth points out a little smudge about two stories up the glass, kind of like a handprint on a car window. I don't know if you see that. There's a big smudge. It's quite likely that that's a bird strike. How many birds has Lights Out DC found outside this building? We have found hundreds of birds at this building. There are buildings like this in every major city across the world. Many leave their lights on all night long, even when there's no one inside. And yes, glass windows on buildings can be dangerous to birds for multiple reasons. But Lisbeth says light makes these windows so much more dangerous. If there was no light inside the buildings at night, birds wouldn't be attracted to what's on the other side of the glass, and they wouldn't fly into it. So if you turned off the light, you would have a lot less collisions at these buildings.
There's more and more research every day about how light pollution affects humans as well. Excess nightlight has been shown to mess with our circadian rhythms and our ability to sleep well. Researchers link it to higher rates of depression in teens, and some studies are finding that exposure to too much light may be connected with higher rates of some cancers. There's also our cultural connection to the night sky. Many of our cultures, beliefs, histories, and rituals are deeply intertwined with the night sky. Our planets are literally named after Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. But Diane Turnshek says we've been ensconced in a luminous fog for so long that entire generations don't realize what a true dark sky is, that you can see the Milky Way, IRL. But how do you convince someone to fix a problem they don't know exists? That's the hardest part, just trying to explain to someone who doesn't know what the Milky Way is, who doesn't know what a dark sky is, how to explain to them that it's important. Now, there are solutions, but like with many things, we have to look at how we got ourselves into this situation to understand how to get out of it. And that is coming up after the break. The staple ingredients of a perfect summer are no secret. Sunshine, swimming, and backyard barbecues. The rest of it is just dressing on the side. So for the best summer, you need the best grill. And it doesn't get any better than Monument Grill's Denali 605 Pro, a premium six-burner smart gas grill that brings modern convenience to an age-old tradition. Crafted with stainless steel for durability and infrared burner for faster, even heating, Bluetooth temperature monitoring, and a lid that lets you see what's going on on your grill without changing the temperature inside. It's a grill that's both sizzle and steak. Whether you're a seasoned grill master or just starting out, it's sure to impress. Your friends will be amazed by the Denali 605 Pro. Use code OUTSIDE45 for an exclusive discount and enjoy fast, free shipping. Cities weren't always so bright. In cities, uh, in the, the 18th and 19th century, you can see the Milky Way. Uh, if you're out in the city for a night on the town, you might hire a local child who knows the city to carry a torch for oh my you and light your way to see you home <laughs> safely. You know. The yeah. pre-Uber Uber. <laughs> yeah. the, an escort. An escort, yeah, <laughs> yes. there we go. This is Hal Wallace, curator of the electricity collections at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He says humans have always been afraid of the dark. Fear is a good way to describe it um, because you can't see very far off into the darkness. Who knows what's out there, what predator might be lurking at the edge of that campfire uh, light. Before modern lighting, nighttime in the city was a time of drunken debauchery, crime, the witching hour. It was also just harder to get anything done after sunset. If you've ever been in a power outage, you know how tricky it is to read or cook by candlelight. In the early 1800s, many American cities started installing gas street lamps. Upper-class families could even get gas lighting in their homes. Keep in mind, the light was still pretty dim. It flickered, and it smelled pretty bad. But that was sort of how people lived in the U.S. for most of the 19th century. Until Thomas Edison was like, 
gas lighting, psh, I got something that's going to blow you away. And on New Year's Eve, 1879, he did. Edison invites the world to Menlo Park. He lights the lab, the office building, uh, the grounds of the Menlo Park lab. Oh, yeah, and Sarah Jordan's boarding house across the street where a lot of his team <laughs> live. With about 100 or so uh, of these new uh, incandescent lamps. People looked at these, and they, it was just a mystical experience. Many of them uh, broke down and cried. I mean, it just, they really? had that emotional, awestruck experience. Edison's incandescent bulb created the equivalent of 16 candles, enough light to carry on your daily pursuits well past sundown. And these lights were also stable, no flicker. They didn't smell like gas. And they could go anywhere. Stores, homes, streets, factories. This created an explosion of light. Author Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, Sundown no longer emptied the promenade, and the day was lengthened out to every man's fancy. The city folk had stars of their own, biddable, domesticated stars. But Thomas Edison and his financier, J.P. Morgan, weren't light fanatics. They were capitalists. And in 1892, they teamed up to create General Electric. The point wasn't to sell light bulbs. It was to sell equipment that made electricity. And it was a major portion of their profits. Up until 1900, maybe 1910 at the latest, as much as 80 percent of electric power that's being generated in the United States is going into powering lights. Light equaled money. The more light people used, the more money utility companies made. By the 1930s, electrical lighting was popping off in almost every city and town in America. The people running utility companies were drinking bootleg champagne and cackling over piles of cash. That is, until the Great Depression. People aren't using as many lights, and it freaks out the, the lighting industry. And in 1933, they come up with this national sales campaign called Better Light, Better Sight. Essentially, more light equals more safety. And it's all about getting more and more and more light out into people's homes, into the cities. More and more families wired their homes for electricity. Drivers expected roadways to be brightly lit. Cities installed as much light as they could in their downtown business districts. Think of a theater marquee surrounded by light bulbs, towering neon restaurant signs. Business-wise, it was survival of the brightest. If you have a retail business in, you know, in a downtown area, uh, you're going to have a very bright showroom window. And if your competitor next door has a brighter showroom window, you're going to bump the lighting in yours so that, you can, <laughs> so that you can stay competitive. Now, the effects of all this new light started to be felt in the early 1940s. That's when the first reports of what we today know as light pollution started coming out. At the time, they called it sky glow. And it was great news for America's enemies. Early in World War II, the German submarines, the U-boats, are operating off the Atlantic coast and off the Gulf Coast of the United States. And the German sailors refer to this as the happy time. Uh, 
because they are sinking merchant ships right and left because those merchant ships are illuminated. They're silhouetted against the brightly lit American coastline. Coastal U.S. cities like Boston and New York were so bright, they were basically like spotlights shining on American ships at sea. And this was creating all sorts of problems for America's war effort. This is from an article in the Boston Globe in May of 1942. Everyone who has been to sea, or even out in the darkness of the country, knows the umbrella of radiance which hangs brilliantly over every city, active town, or industrial concentration. Like the spray from a fountain, light from the sky glow radiates out in all directions. And the government is pleading with people to turn off lights. Many people don't. Business owners say, look, if I turn my lights off, I'm going to go out of business. Even with lives literally at stake, people chose to keep the lights on. I mean, we've seen with the recent pandemic just how receptive many people are to government mandates. Right. This is nothing new. So what happened? Bodies and wreckage are washing up on the shore daily because the U-boats are sinking these merchant ships. Wow. And people are not cooperating. Light was an unstoppable juggernaut, a mainstay of American society. After the war, things only got brighter. The Rural Electrification Act brought electrical lighting to all the darkest nooks and crannies of the American countryside. Wartime innovation and inventions from abroad gave us all sorts of brighter lights. Low-pressure sodium. Fluorescent. Mercury vapor. Light was everywhere and getting brighter. A new generation was coming up in a world where 24-hour artificial lighting was the norm. And this was also the 1960s, a time when people started to look at industrial production and ask, hold on, what is this doing to us and our planet? This entire era is beginning to become conscious Mm. of the unintended consequences, what the economists call negative externalities Mm. of our industrial society. The words pollution and light started to be used in the same sentence. But at this time, environmentalists were also trying to stop poison from going into our water and our air. A few stray photons didn't exactly make the top of the priority list. So light pollution took a backseat to other types of pollution. And all the while, our skies kept getting brighter. And then around the early 2000s, things really jumped up a notch with a new energy-efficient light bulb, the high-efficiency white LED. LED is an acronym, stands for light-emitting diode, and it basically is a computer chip, uh, a transistor that emits light. LEDs used less energy than other types of lighting, and that's pretty great if you're trying to burn less fossil fuel. There's a big but here, though. If you replace a 100-watt high-pressure sodium lamp with a 100-watt LED, that LED is going to pump out a whole lot more light. So the night sky gets brighter. LEDs are everywhere. Homes, offices, factories. Light is plentiful and cheap. So it's not going to bankrupt you if you leave your porch light on all night. Or for an office building manager to leave their fluorescence buzzing 24-7. But Diane Turnchek says even though it's getting less expensive to create more light, it is still cheaper just to turn the lights out. 
A few years ago, she helped convince her university, Carnegie Mellon, to turn their lights off during bird migration season. And we turned out 10 different installations of mostly decorative lighting from midnight to 6 a.m. Saved thousands of dollars. And so the facilities people decided never to turn those lights on again from midnight to 6 a.m. because not just during migratory season, but all year round, they're off. It's the money. Heck with decoration. It's about the bottom line. Diane says this has been the message that resonates when she talks with people about light pollution. It's cheaper to have less light. But to make real progress, to help birds, to bring the stars back, we have to make systematic changes. And in the years after Diane Turnshek returned from the Utah desert, she found a way to do just that. She pushed the mayor and the city council of Pittsburgh to tackle light pollution in their city. And in the fall of 2021, she made a breakthrough. You'll notice soon that the lights in the city of Pittsburgh are going to start to change a little bit. Today, Mayor Peduto announced a new dark sky lighting ordinance. It is the first of its kind in the country. Diane was instrumental in pushing for this dark sky ordinance. It says that whenever the city builds something new, renovates or replaces lighting on the streets or in its parks, it will use dark sky friendly lighting. And dark sky-friendly lighting doesn't mean less light. It means being smarter about how we light things. For example... If you're trying to light your driveway, you want it to light your driveway, not the trees alongside the driveway. Hal Wallace says we don't have to go back to the dark times and bring back torch-bearing children to tackle light pollution. Just light with intention. Outdoor lights should be no brighter than necessary. And they should shine where you need them, not up into the sky or into your neighbor's window. And yes, technology and innovation gave us the glimmering domes of light over our cities. But it can also help us solve this problem, too. Hal says there are all sorts of smartphone apps, timers, dimmers, and motion sensors available to help you limit the amount of light you use. He's optimistic that someday we can pause, look up from a city street at the night sky, and see the Milky Way again. More and more people are beginning to realize, A, that it's a problem, and that the problem has a solution. And it's amazing what we can do when we work together. (laughs) A century of progress and spectacular innovation has left us living in the long shadow of light pollution. But we have an advantage in solving this problem. Unlike other types of pollution, light doesn't stick around in an environment for years after. It can literally be solved at the speed of light. With the flip of a light switch, we can save the lives of countless frogs, turtles, insects, and birds. And we can reclaim the sense of awe that comes with seeing a truly dark sky. That feeling of connection to all living things. That we're all floating through this vast galaxy together. When you're under a clear, dark sky, you feel like the whole planet can see the same stars. If you're far away from your loved ones, you see the same moon, you see the same sky. It brings the whole world closer.
That was an episode of Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. If you liked this story, you can find over 100 more episodes in their feed that sneak you behind the scenes at the Smithsonian. Subscribe to Side Door wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social media at Side Door Pod. You can learn more about the Smithsonian's exhibition, Lights Out, Recovering Our Night Sky, by visiting the National Museum of Natural History's website, naturalhistory.si.edu. Side Door is produced by James Morrison and Lizzie Peabody. Associate producer is Natalie Boyd. Executive producer is Anne Kananen. Editorial team is Jess Sadek, Sharon Bryant, and Tammy O'Neill. Mix by Tarek Fuda. Episode artwork is by Dave Leonard. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. You are listening to The Outside Podcast, which is made possible by Outside Plus subscribers. Learn more about all the benefits of a subscription and subscribe now at outsideonline.com slash pod plus.